Hello, welcome back to Brown, Bad, and Bothered. I'm your host, Andrea, and if this is your first time tuning in, I hope you have a spectacular time exploring this podcast show. My returning listeners, hey girl, hey, I know I've been on a huge hiatus recently. I need a mental health break. I was definitely struggling with some creative burnout, a lack of motivation, and a sense of what am I even doing? What do I want to do? I'll be definitely having some episodes going into my healing journey and how I've been feeling lately so stay tuned for that pretty much happy new year guys but i can't wait to see what 2023 brings for me for you and for the podcast i think this shows us in a very small way that we all have our own timelines and maybe we all won't have it together in the new year in january and that's completely okay before we move on don't forget to stop drop roll rate review and subscribe to the podcast it would mean the world chef's kiss All right, so mental health stigma continues to be a prominent issue within the South Asian community. And while I know it's prevalent, I often felt alone during my recent mental health struggles. Joining us today is Rinal, an Indian-American freelance journalist from Milwaukee. Rinal has done a lot of work within various minority communities, hoping to expand mental health awareness and destigmatize the issue. Rinal is the author of Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlight, and I'm truly excited to have this conversation with her today about the book, what it means for our community, and her upcoming projects. Rinal, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's been a process to get this episode going. So thank you for being patient and for giving me your time today. I'd love for you to tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, so um, I am an author. Um, I published my first book in May of 2021. It's called Saya Unveiled, and it's an anthology of 11 true stories about South Asian individuals um, growing up in the Western world and their personal journeys navigating mental health. And each story is told in third person and is true, featuring interviews with them. Right now, I am actually in the process of writing book number two, which is going to be a a similar thing, an anthology with just some differences in writing style and more variety of stories represented. Beautiful. So how did your passion for mental health and writing start? Um, So my passion for writing started as far as I can remember when I was a small child. Um, I think that um, things like writing, spelling, reading, language was always a strength of mine. Mm -hmm. I guess you could say liberal arts in a sense. And then I would say my passion for mental health or perhaps all things human brain related started when I was like a high schooler, mm-hmm. when I took my first psychology class and had a lot to do also with the fact that despite having a lot of social, emotional and academic learning challenges growing up, I never received any sort of diagnosis or therapy or support service um, until I pursued it on my own at the age of 20, which mm-hmm. happens to be the story for for a lot of South Asian individuals that I've met too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's still a stigma when it comes to pursuing creative pathways or non-traditional job roles. Did you struggle with that in your own personal life? In the sense that I come from two engineer parents Mm -hmm. and they, like many South Asian people I knew, um, really respected not only respected, but saw working in STEM as a way to even just survive in the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite the fact that United States, several data and studies show that you do more than just survive on a STEM salary. But (laughs) um, the fact that I gravitated towards the liberal arts as Mm -hmm. and struggled with 
subjects that required nonverbal comprehension, such as math or abstract stuff, such as science, um, did provoke some arguments in my household starting as young as nine years old. Yeah. And continue until I was maybe like a high school kid when they realized that, you know, she likes what she likes. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to have to just teach her to work with it, but also in a practical fashion, so to speak. Yeah. And then that's what provoked me to study um, marketing with journalism. Yeah. To kind of give me more quote unquote options in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I went through something similar. So my dad's a banker, my mom's a chemistry teacher, and they never had the pressure of like, oh, you have to do medicine or engineering or anything like that. But I remember when I was telling them, because I was very creative from a very young age, and for the most part, so is my family, but they never pursued it professionally. Mm -hmm. So I remember telling them at first, like, oh, I want to study like advertising. And my dad was like, doesn't sound like you're going to have a career in that, do something a bit more safer. So it was a challenge navigating that and now like being able to actually study what I enjoy and like creating career and that building that up. It's definitely something I see a lot of us struggling with, but I feel like our parents are becoming more open-minded and it's a beautiful growth and change within the society like our society with the book um what was the main inspiration and goal behind Saya unveiled so I never really intended to write a book for most of my life necessarily Mm -hmm. but I just kind of stumbled across this free memoir writing course during quarantine when it first happened and I was in lockdown and then that teacher taught us about publish book publishing and how self-publishing is an option and I was like okay if it's that easy then it would be interesting to like put a book out there, take the next step in my, in the writing world. Mm -hmm. And um, I basically just brainstormed topics of interest to me. And then this came about and I was like, you know, I don't know. I feel like I haven't met a single other Indian or South Asian acquaintance or friend that has a journey with their mental health to share, unless it's something like severely um, debilitating or something. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I was like, let me look a little bit more into this and see if I can find this myself. And it was, I found people easier than I thought. And, you know, I think that the point of the book is just to, is to a promote intergenerational healing in our, in our diaspora, Mm -hmm. as well as, as well as perhaps even teaching non-South Asian providers how to make for more culturally competent providers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Cause I remember reading the prologue that you mentioned that these, um, for non-South Asians, there's not much information for them to go off on what mental health issues look like within our community. So that's Or understanding the stigma or, or the yeah. cultural factors that how yeah. mental health looks in our community as opposed to how the same conditions can look in another. Yeah, because I've, I've heard from friends when they look for therapists who aren't South Asian and if they're South Asian, there's almost that like cultural communication block and maybe this is also a way to stop that so we're not also limited to who we can go to for help um because right now and I stay in Adelaide and it's pretty much a very white community they're very welcoming and I'm considering finding a therapist here but it is hard because I do feel like someone's probably not gonna understand my issues unless they're South Asian but it's also very hard to find in this demographic that I live in in my book you'll see a pattern coming up of people feeling very strongly about wanting to work with providers of their culture and not have to waste 30 minutes of an hour session teaching them cultural and religious norms. However, I will say it's also somewhat of a double-edged sword in that, you know, maybe I feel like now that I'm writing book number two, I'm meeting people that maybe were in their, that are currently in their forties and older that said, you know, in the nineties, I would not have wanted a South Asian counselor because 
I don't want to work with someone who kind of endorses bad cultural norms, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe even the fear of that, there's this idea everyone within our community knows each other and that possibility of them knowing your family friend or your cousin's cousin or, you know, whoever it may be. People don't understand confidentiality to this day. No, definitely. So in your process of writing this book, what was the most common experience or, or conditions that you heard from your interviewees? The most common conditions depicted were things like anxiety and depression, which isn't mm-hmm. too shocking because they are probably the most common ones to the point where people are misusing those terms. Yeah. Um, and however, I will say that, you know, um, someone who works in counseling once told me that any given condition is going to present in different ways per somebody's, you know, societal and demographical factors ranging Mm -hmm. from their age to their uh, ethnicity, to their religion, to uh, their gender, to otherwise societal expectations of them. So for example, you might see themes of um, anxiety driven by academic pressure coming up a lot in my book, for example. And I think that, for example, goes back to model minority myth and how we belong to the, how we belong to said myth and how that puts a lot of pressure on us. The model minority myth, I feel like it's a word that I've heard a lot within the community, but I never really fully understood the concept and more so the negative impacts it could have on certain groups of minorities. Could you break that down for us? So I would define the model minority myth as the false notion that a certain group of people is effortlessly and inherently successful, linear, doing things right in life and that other groups should try to model and copy off of. Mm -hmm. So um, then that goes back to stereotypes. You know, I think that the word stereotypes often carries a negative notion, but Mm -hmm. stereotypes aren't always negative in the sense, like, for example, all Asians are smart. All Indians um, are doctors. Um, All Chinese people are math whizzes, that type of thing. Like it sounds, it sounds like a good thing at face value, but then internalizing these messages over time, creates very unnecessary pressures. These unnecessary pressures can make it hard for someone to be who they're, you know, who they're who they want to be as opposed to who they're supposed to be. They'll continue to chase this perfectionistic, um, this non-existent perfectionistic um, standard. Um, and then that's going to drag down their mental health. It'll drag it down. It'll create another false notion in their mind that, you know, people like me who look like me cannot have mental health related challenges. Yeah. We're weak for seeking out, yeah. you know, help for said challenges because no one else who looks like us does so that type yeah. of thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think even the other side of that is because South Asian communities are very collectivist in the sense that it's all about protecting everyone's honor and being loyal to your family and also loyal to the reputation and how your family is perceived by other families in the wider community. Um, if you don't fit that stereotype and the pressure our own community puts on itself, you're almost seen as a disappointment and a disgrace. And I think that also leads to a lot of anxiety and achievement anxiety, which is something that I faced a lot. Um, even though my parents are quite liberal and open-minded to what to who I could be and what I wanted from life, 
I still felt the external pressure from the community to fit into this box of what a good South Asian woman is in terms of career and how I dress and how I carry myself and how I even communicate with the opposite gender. Right. And I oh, and somebody did once tell me that stigma as it relates to mental health doesn't necessarily have to be one that somebody else teaches you. It could be internalized and based on what you observe around when it comes to people around you. And I think that one thing I stated in my book is that it's kind of interesting how it's like all groups have their associated stereotypes, but it's like when you belong to the model minority group, it's like yeah. you strive to fit into that box of stereotypes yeah. and that becomes a barrier to seeking help for your mental health. Whereas, you know, a long time ago, I was speaking with an African-American friend of mine and mm -hmm. she was like, I've always been taught that as a black female, um, those two things alone mean I have to. I'm always going to be seen as inferior by people of any shade of color. I'm going to have to work harder than others. And mm -hmm. I think that's why for my mental health, um, my mother felt like it was just another barrier and preferred to live in denial that I was struggling because of that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even when we look at, you know, um, African-American women or even South Asian women, a trend in the books was women repeatedly describe themselves or their mothers as having to be strong this need that whether they're struggling or they're not they had to carry those burdens and um that itself creates more mental health stigma because you're growing up seeing your mother maybe go through some struggles in her marriages or not being able to put herself first um and then that also becomes internalized within you as a young woman is this something you've experienced in any way or have seen around you and your in the sense that you know i can relate to um seeing you know an indian woman perhaps in my family coming across as submissive or weak being taught that in a way it's kind of the norm in that you know if i try to speak up or something it would get looked down upon that type yeah. of thing yeah. for example i was always the type of child and that always had this attitude about me growing up that if something doesn't make sense why do it and yeah. you know i would question anything and everything that i was told to do and could not fall into line if there was not a logical explanation mm -hmm. given to why i did that why i'm supposed to be a certain way or do a certain thing and i think that that's something that did really frustrate my parents as yeah. you know as i was a kid like at first i do get the sense also that things like talking back to parents is something that is more looked down upon in asian communities than mm -hmm. um white American, for example. And mm -hmm. I think to the point where I feel like, you know, I had to reach a certain age for even like respectfully disagreeing with an elder could be seen as okay. And I think that like also hinders us because we grow up being afraid to communicate basic emotions or handling basic conflict. Um, so as we're trying to navigate the world as adults with our own aspirations, our own thought processes, and we may be strong of who we are as a person, it's now a challenge even as adults to even communicate that with our parents because there's this constant pressure and fear of walking around eggshells and trying to avoid a huge blow up over even the smallest of things. Yeah, and I think that the false notion that our community has is that strength equals maximum tolerance to anything yep. and everything. Yeah. 
And I think that people in our generation are finally starting to slowly change that, but are getting backlash in return for, for just that. And I think that um, my issue, I think that what I'm observing, for example, is that I think the elder generation of South Asians seem to believe maybe on a subconscious level that because I tolerated X, Y, and Z, you know, why does my kid who was born with things that I did not receive, why can't they be the same way? Yeah. And I always say that, you know, there's a difference in life between surviving and thriving. And because I had the privilege of kind of being born into entitlement as a U.S. citizen, as a daughter of two engineers, I get to exercise just that. And this is something that always bothers me. And I see this a lot is when parents are like, oh, you have no idea the hardships I had to go through and the struggles I had to go through. And here you are living life How's so that easily my fault? And struck- exactly and it's sort of like I completely understand like each generation goes through their own trials and tribulations and their own struggles but wouldn't you as a family member want the quality of life for each generation to get easier isn't the whole point of the advancement of your generation to be like okay I'm doing all of this work so my child doesn't have to stress as much as I did doesn't have to go through as many struggles as I did so I find that like and- it's very, it's so infuriating for me because why wouldn't you want things to get easier? <laughs> I, think, I think immigrant parents do give their children the luxury of being a citizen in the West mm-hmm. and every wonderful thing that comes with it, mm-hmm. doing their, their job in terms of instilling a hardcore work ethic, being able to put a roof over your head, food on your mm-hmm. table. But again, survival versus thriving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. survival is all that is being done for you at that point. And I think furthermore, it's like, I always use the analogy that if you have the capacity to um, be able to fund for a child to get an education beyond just the minimal high school diploma, push them to be better, do better as it comes to their career aspirations, why can't things like, you know, maximizing and optimizing your wellness be seen the same way? And yeah. why can't things like therapy and mental health assistance be seen as just another tool or avenue to max yeah. to optimize your life outside of just survival again? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what I see a shift in now is that we're recognizing there's a lot of strength in opening up and in being vulnerable and in admitting that certain things aren't okay. And I think, you know, that's a beautiful way to go forward. And that's how we have to end the cycle. Um, Another theme that I saw that was very noticeable was the academic pressure and the need for um, achievement. And one of the uh, individuals that you interviewed described their relationship with his parents as very result-based. I think that a lot of us have issues with people pleasing that stem from parent pleasing and this feeling that love was conditional so how do we break the cycle of achievement anxiety or this need for achievement and what can we learn from it so I see that I see the emphasis on academia as a double-edged sword in our community in that it's by all means it's wonderful to teach your child the value of hard work and, you know, trying to push yourself to improve when possible. I feel like it's one thing to be strict about effort and another thing to be strict about output. 
input. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where um, more, again, I'm generalizing South Asian parents could find that balance between not trying to stop pushing like this broad standard on any and every child. Like, for example, you know, all kids need to be good at math and science. Yeah. All kids need to work in STEM, that type of thing. Yeah. But also you can still teach them things like self-improvement and and things like value of hard work and, you know, doing your best within reason. Yeah. And, you know, not sending them messages that they're not good enough or not worthy or, or not going to survive in the world unless yeah. they fit that one mold type of thing. Yeah. And I think that when we're on the topic of conditional love, um, I have also seen in South Asian um, fa- households that, that this notion of, you know, because mom and dad did more for you than the average white American family that you owe them more, I think is another thing that needs yep. to go. And I've been over this in therapy too, you know, do you really owe your parents and this and that. I worked with a white American counselor at the time, and she presented a good point when she said that, you could survey a thousand South Asians asking them, do you owe your parents and to what degree? And you're just going to keep on coming back to the drawing board in that sense. You know, growing up as a, like you said, like a child of immigrant, there's so much pressure to be like, we're paying all of this money. We're doing all of this so you can have a better life. All of these resources have been handed to you and we've worked so hard to reach this place to give these resources. So even for me today, I know my parents aren't sitting there being like, oh, we're waiting for you to give this back to us. But there is this like, subconscious guilt and pressure to you know sort of repay them in a way you know I think another factor with the conditional love is how common and normalized negative talk is within South Asian households because verbal abuse is a very common I mean abuse in general but even verbal abuse is a very common issue but it's not spoken about or even admitted um we could argue the levels of how it exists but I think it's very common where I don't want to make a stereotype but like if you come home with like a 98% or a 90% on a quiz it's like why isn't this good enough or if you make a mistake like a genuine mistake any teenager any kid would it's immediately like oh you're useless or how are you going to succeed in life and you're being such a child and there's not much space given to make errors and then to learn from them in a positive manner and then what I've even noticed is I feel that South Asian children don't receive as much positive reinforcement compared to our white counterparts so we're often fed a lot of negative tough love um, but then we're not balancing it out with positive reinforcement with then like you know creates issues with self-esteem and doubting our capabilities especially when we enter the adult working world you know um or seeking that validation from an external source a potentially mm-hmm. unhealthy source mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. as if a girl develops daddy issues or something because yep. of that yep yep and I've definitely you know I've seen my own process with sometimes um being codependent in relationships and needing that extra verbal affirmation from a partner when I should have been seeking that from myself and that's been a whole journey on its own I mean, some people may say that people seek in relationships what they didn't get. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that 
outside of dating, I think I have heard things like, you know, not receiving positive household in the feedback can create that self-doubt, black and white thinking, tunnel vision thinking, Mm -hmm. thinking that um, every decision and thing you do in life is either right or wrong, no in between, um, wanting to get it from, wanting to get that validation from outside sources, periods, whether that's in the dating world, on social media, friends, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. What has been your key takeaway while writing these books? Um, I think that with in each of the two books, I just keep on learning more and more about how how trauma, intergenerational trauma, um, and how it impacts mental health is presenting in our diaspora as a whole with more experiences that I read. And I think Mm -hmm. it's also really highlighting the beauty of um, the diversity within the diversity of our diaspora as a whole, which is really refreshing for someone who lives in, um, I won't say that there's no South Asians where I live, but um, it's definitely so much less than um, some other um, states and cities Mm -hmm. than outside of where I'm living. And I live in a very segregated city too. What I thought your storytelling sort of proved was the importance of destigmatizing mental health. And that was my key takeaway because you had stories where the parents were very hesitant to address their child's mental health issues. And there was a lot of hush hushness about it. Like, oh, like, we're not going to tell anyone where you're going, what you're doing, what's wrong, um, which then just prolonged the individual's healing journey and then you had other cases where the parents are very open-minded they want top of it they're like we're booking doctor's appointments we're going to find out what's wrong we're going to look at like the different treatment options and you could see how that drastically improved one's healing journey right and I'm glad you brought that up because a generic pattern that I did find in the book in the stories is the fact that most parents would not accept or be proactive on their kids struggle unless it got to a point where it became severe or life-threatening or impacted their daily living in a sense and it could have been addressed a lot earlier I think that also some more themes you find are the you know keep this inside the household type of mindset too and you know some of those parents Parents were capable of being educated with time and it was a process, whereas other people chose to just kind of continue their healing journey through other avenues and not necessarily have like their have elders involved in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another aspect I'll be so interested to see in the second book is how religion plays a role. Because I remember in one of the interviews, they did speak about religion a bit. And I think religion can be a strong tool in providing strength and maybe an anchor of faith that things can get better. But at the same time, the way that it's used is, oh, just pray. Like, just pray and your problems will go. Have faith in God. It sort of dismisses very valid mental health issues, but it also dismisses the entire scope of medical treatment. Right. And I think that um, that is a pattern that you're going to find also in book number two is that people might be told that they should pray their problems away or try to do so and it doesn't work, for example. And I think that the pattern you'll find, too, is that, you know, in some cases, 
families that might not be quite as well educated might rely Mm -hmm. on prayer even when things are at their worst as opposed Mm -hmm. to the medical system, for example. Mm -hmm. And uh, this isn't to knock spirituality or religion. Um, I'm not a heavily religious person, but um, I do believe in religion and in God as a whole. And I think I wouldn't be opposed to having a spirituality routine in my regime of wellness. Um, However, medicine does have its place too. And mental health disorders are not spiritual imbalances. They're chemical imbalances. They're medical imbalances. And there's some things that no matter how much prayer you incorporate into your life, the medicine world is what you need. Therapy is what you need. Yeah. And while religion is wonderful for building camaraderie and therefore giving you comfort and, you know, inner peace and a purpose to move forward, sometimes it doesn't always address your deeply rooted traumas and issues. Yep. hundred percent. And I mean, for example, like if you have diabetes or heart issue, you're not going to sit and pray and hope that it gets better because of your faith in God. You do need medical intervention. And, you know, even in moments where I have my anxiety flares up or I'm feeling really low, I do find a soothing element of sometimes praying or looking into spirituality. But like for me, I have PCOS. A lot of my mental health issues stem from hormone imbalances. No amount of praying is going to address that that imbalance. You know, it comes down to diet and therapy and making sure I'm taking care of my body. Yeah, I agree. And by all means, if you feel connected to religion or spirituality, keep it in your life, but um, don't disregard other things as options. And I think that um, part of the root cause to stigma is seeing, is thinking that one way is better than another way. For example, I feel like, you know, why can't we should be promoting the ideology that a mental health is a spectrum that all of us are on. All of us have mental health, not all of us have mental illnesses or disorders. And that um, why can't, you know, the medical route, the holistic route, the religious route, why can't they be seen as equals that Mm -hmm. can take, why should it matter, you know, how you get somewhere as long as the end result is the same? And why not see it as, you know, this is not a one size fits all at the end of the day. Yeah. And And I think at the end of the day, you need to take a step back and realize what do we want at the end of this? to be better right mentally emotionally physically and you have to do what like what has to be done on the topic of spectrums uh and different type of mental health issues um while there's still a taboo with mental health i feel like the acceptance of neurodivergence seems even slimmer amongst our community what exactly is neurodivergence and why is it crucial for our community to educate themselves accept that these conditions exist and to normalize treatment. I'm not a clinician, but my understanding of neurodivergence at first was a term to um, normalize or and not, you know, look so negatively around people who have what's called neurodevelopmental conditions such as Mm -hmm. autism, dyslexia, ADHD, dyspraxia, um, and learning disabilities. However, I'm noticing that people who identify with things like PTSD or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia are also calling themselves neurodivergent now. Seems to have become more of a broad umbrella term to say that okay. you're, you have a brain difference of some sort 
in a sense. Okay. Now, while we're on the topic of things like autism, um, ADHD, like like neurodevelopmental conditions, um, I think that the stigma comes from stereotypes that it presents a certain way. Um, for example, even in the U.S., you'll see that quiet children and females have been severely underdiagnosed for the longest time, and that's now slowly starting to change. Yep. So again, it's a it's a gender stereotype. It's um, a certain presentation, such as disruptiveness, hyperactivity. Um, for autism, you know, a lot of language deficits, rocking back and forth, for example. Yep. Um, not having enough language to ever live independently or work, um, being yeah. sensitive to loud noises, repeating words and phrases. Yeah. For ADHD, it's some it's being loud and obnoxious in class and getting bad grades. And it's seen as a kid thing. It's seen as a male thing. Um, yeah. So I think, I guess the theme is almost like, you know, um, if you don't disturb, present an inconvenience to the world around you, then all you need to do is try a little harder type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, um, re research is showing that a lot of women only get diagnosed in their mid-20s or later when they do have autism or ADHD because the medical world just validates only the symptoms that mostly show up in men or boys and doesn't the take The ones that, again, yeah. inconvenience other humans. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, in terms of the importance of the acceptance of these issues is, I don't know if you've watched the movie Thare Zameenpur? No. So it's a Hindi movie and it's about this young boy who's the youngest sibling. His older brother is basically star, older, overachieving child. And he's got dyslexia and his parents are like, why can't you have it together all the time? And he basically grows up with a lot of verbal abuse, being belittled. And even his teachers just ridicule him. And they're like, you're just a lazy child. You're lazy. You're unmotivated. What's wrong with you? You're constantly repeating your academic years. And it turns out he has dyslexia. But when he was sort of diagnosed, his parents refused to believe it because they're like, oh, well, if he's got dyslexia, like what he needs to be in a mental facility. Like how how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to show our face to others? So instead of worrying about getting the right treatment, we're now at square one where it's Lokia Kenge. What will people think? How are we going to protect ourselves um, from like this, from essentially like, our child who might be considered this crazy person. And it's ironic because we're taught um, as kids and perhaps as South Asian kids a little bit more that mom and dad know what's best for you, but how are you acting in what's best for the child if what other people outside of the household will say about your child impacts the decisions that you make about them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it also comes down to we know what's best for you in terms of what's best for our overall like reputation. It's a yep. very um, twisted, selfish um, perspective or way of thinking. Yep. And I think that um, the whole, and then that coming back to what will people say, I think drilling into a kid's head that public perceptions, everything is also going to force them to internalize their struggle even more and have that struggle not be quite so apparent to other people. And I think that part of the solution is, um, you know, when someone has any condition that's not physical, you know, you just educate yourself, forget about what the outside so separate yourself from what the outside world thinks it is and open the open the textbook and see what it is at face value from a clinical impartial perspective. Yeah, 100%. Another 
issue that I wanted to talk about is, and you did mention this, was out of the 11 interviews, only two were men. And suicide rates amongst men globally continue to rise. And um, mental health, like men are struggling with mental health as much as women are. Was toxic masculinity and um, gender roles a reason why it may have been harder for you to find men who are willing to acknowledge and open up about their mental health issues? So I had, um, like, I looked up South Asian mental health in the Google search bar one day, and I just reached out to them when I was looking for my people to interview, and they put out submission calls, and girls were responding to that only. And so with the two men that I found, it's like I had to go through my own network, and they had to ask people and ask people and finally got to them. So my guess is that, yes, um, men are probably a bit more insecure talking about anything vulnerable about themselves in that way yeah yeah and I think that um there's a lot of pressure I think when we look at it from gender roles within South Asia there's a lot of pressure on men to still be the sole responsible caretaker financially of their parents of their wives of their children there is this pressure to be the perfect son and I think it manifests in many ways where they're expected to have it together all the time and maybe not show weakness and express emotion and typical toxic masculinity of men don't cry and um, you have to be this alpha male and I also think that it has to do with um, you know if a therapist were to have a white client versus um, a, a client who a POC male client, it's like, you know, maybe the other one feels like they have more to lose by opening up to them too. Yeah. And they might be even um more heftier cycles to break and generational yeah. trauma in whether that's like family or financial or um historical trauma. But overall, um, what was your significant thoughts during the writing process? I've really enjoyed everything that 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 this writing book number one has brought me, um, that it has brought my readers. Got treated for severe social anxiety at 20, and it's gotten a lot better since then, but I would avoid public speaking like the plague, but then I had to do it to promote my book. And yeah. I not only um, do it, but I actually enjoy doing it, for example. Um, yeah. I also feel a lot more connected to my Indian roots and culture. Um, Not that I'm saying that I wasn't before, but I think that, you know, growing up in a segregated town, I'm used to only seeing South Asians a specific way. And that's falling under the model minority myth. And all these South Asians I've met in terms of writing my book, collaborating with, has shown me the diversity within the diversity of our diaspora again, and given me more angles to explore my heritage too. Yeah. And I think also like growing up as South Asian outside of South Asia, there is that third culture kid experience, a child of immigrant experience where you're battling two identities, right? Your identity as a South Asian and your identity as an American. That was me growing up, my identity as a Indian girl growing up in Africa. And it can be very confusing juggling those cultures. And you often feel alone, even though you know you have a community around you where the kids are probably going through similar battles. So I feel like in this journey, you listening to everyone's sort of journey with their identity and the issues that have stemmed from it and what they've learned. Um, it's brought that sense of like, oh, we're not alone. We're all in this together, navigating these issues, very similar issues that are manifesting yeah. in slightly different ways. And I, and 
this journey and meeting so many of my own people has taught me that there is no one way to do that. And I think that's beautiful. I mean, I had a great time reading the book. I mean, it's obviously, in a way, it's very sad to see how um, common and relatable these issues are and these stories are. But I think it's beautiful that we're now able to speak up about it. And like, I was like, even to the point of like, looking at the ages of some of these interviewees, I was like, wow, like, they're younger than me some of them were younger some of them were older and I thought it was very beautiful to see different age groups different generations open up about not only their experiences but their parents and grandparents viewpoints and experiences with this and I think that it's so important to humanize these issues because we know the statistics most of us know the statistics we almost know the overall take on mental health and mental health stigma but it's only when we break down and hear these individual stories can we humanize and be like okay we really aren't alone and this is common and this is real so thank you so much for doing the work that you do do you have any other upcoming projects that you'd like to share with us um book number two is the biggest thing i've got for, got going right now for me continuing to collaborate with um people such as yourself to a spread the word and b talk about these sorts of issues um I, i've got an upcoming panel um called shraddha um that's based in the UK, but I'm going to do virtually, for example, um, okay. if you look up the you'll, you'll, you'll find it on my page too, if you want to okay. register, it's virtual. So yeah. that's one example. And I know it's going to be a big one. And also I'm a co-producer for Brown Women Health podcast. So always trying to look for new topics to add to interviewees to add to them to just to uh, spotlight uh, disparities in the Desi diaspora with health too. Amazing. I'll definitely add the links to that in the episode description. If you haven't, check out Saya Unveiled. I'll add the link to the Amazon storefront for that. But yeah, thank you so much, Manal, for joining us today. It was a great time chatting to you. And thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed doing this. Thank you. Everyone else, please take care. Stay safe. Um, mental health is really, really important. So make sure you're doing what you need to do to put yourself first. I know a lot of us, especially as women, think we're selfish for putting ourselves first and taking care of ourselves. We need to get rid of that ideology. Um, don't forget to stop, drop, roll, rate, review, and subscribe. Hopefully I'm going to be good and I can get back to creating content and putting more episodes out there. And I'm really looking forward. So stay tuned, everyone. Bye.